For the first time in its history, McDonald's is leaving a major market. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. We're going to get to McDonald's in a second, uh, but uh, I want to start very quickly with the airline industry. JetBlue is ramping up its all-cash bid for Spirit Airlines. Before, it was a friendly takeover, and now it is officially hostile, which <laughs> uh, it shouldn't make me happy, but it does. Uh, Spirit officially rejected the bid from JetBlue earlier this month. They said, we're going ahead with our plans to merge with Frontier a fellow low-cost airline, and I don't have an investing interest in I don't own shares of any of these companies, but I look at this, Jason, and beyond just sort of the popcorn entertainment value of a hostile takeover, <laughs> I am I wrong to think that JetBlue if they go ahead and they they make this happen with Spirit, that it makes them more competitive with the larger airlines, the Americans, the Deltas of the world. Because if that's the case, I feel like that is a, a potentially a win for people who want to fly from one place to the uh, other and not pay a lot of money. I feel like you're you're definitely on the right path. I, I too I have no no interest in this no 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 dog in this in, in this race so to speak. Um, it, it's it's an interesting situation. There's a lot of drama behind this because when you when you look at the the spirit and uh, frontier deal, like the spirit frontier deal. Is 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 financially it's it's inferior to the offer that JetBlue made. Like JetBlue actually made financially a better offer than this than this this Spirit Frontier deal would be, um, and, and so I, I certainly can understand why they feel the need to go hostile. I guess they're going to submit this tender offer and see how, you know if they can win over the favor of of shareholders there. Um, in theory, yeah, you should see this. You know this merger in either either which way this merger works out, whether it's whether it's Spirit and Frontier or or JetBlue, um, it, it would ultimately I think result in what the fifth largest carrier in in the country. And, and that in theory, yes, that would that would mean they should compete um, a, a little bit more with the bigs, and um, that makes sense. Now the the reason why this this seems to not be happening, the reason why there seems to be so much drama, Spirit. You know, they they ultimately said no thanks to JetBlue. They have some concerns with JetBlue and the regulatory environment there, feeling like that ultimately combining with JetBlue might actually result in, in in higher prices, right? Because they feel like they're going to be moving away from like that low cost provider into that other echelon of of provider like the bigs. Um, and, and and you look at JetBlue. JetBlue has a I think I think a partnership with American. I believe it is some a relationship with American in some capacity. And, and maybe that was that was part of the concern there is is the feeling that ultimately this would eliminate. Competition and and ultimately um, offerings on, on that low cost provider side, and so that that's where all the drama kind of comes from. And, and there is a lot of drama with this, um, so so it remains to, to to be seen how it ultimately all shakes out. But uh, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like this story is going to end anytime soon, and it really does feel like JetBlue 
knows what it wants, is trying to figure out exactly how to get it. Um, if the tender offer is is something that works, yeah, then we'll we'll see how the regulatory side plays out because that's that's another hurdle altogether. All right, let's move on to McDonald's. Uh, earlier this year, McDonald's paused its operations in Russia due to its invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> Today, the company announced it will sell its business and exit Russia entirely. They've got more than 800 restaurants. Most of those are company owned. We'll get to the ripple effects in a second, but if you're a shareholder of McDonald's, how should you feel about this? Because they're going to take a charge on this somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, probably north of a billion dollars. Uh, so you don't like to see that. On the flip side, it does provide some certainty in an area that was kind of up in the air. Yeah, it I mean, to me this feels like a pretty easy decision. Um, they they can take they can make this this decision and it and it it appears, you know, it looks like they get they can take a stance on something that really pretty much the whole world is on board with, right? I mean, we all kind of feel like what's going on over there in Ukraine right now is um, unacceptable. And and so they don't have to really worry about repercussions there. Um, in, in in taking sides, so to speak, because really it seems like everybody, for the most part, around the world is, is on the same side on this one. Um, it, but but also, I mean, you look at it also. This is, frankly, it's not the greatest line of business for them anyway. Uh, you you referred to the company-owned dynamic there, and I think that's important to know because when you look at McDonald's as a business, franchise restaurants represent ninety-three percent of McDonald's restaurants around the world. But if you look at Russia. Franchises operate only 15% of the Russian locations. The company owns the rest. And that matters because ultimately, when you see, when you look at McDonald's financials, you see how this all breaks down. Um, in, in 2021, they did $9.8 billion in company owned restaurant sales, right? Not system wide sales, I'm talking about their revenue, right? And, and so the operating expenses involved there were eight billion dollars. Now, if you look at revenue from franchise restaurants, that was that was closer to thirteen billion dollars. And and operating expenses there, which are primarily just occupancy expenses, th those were two point three billion dollars. And so it it kind of feels like they were looking at this from from two different angles, saying, you know what? Maybe they weren't all that thrilled with this line of the business anyway. It's kind of a lower margin business. Maybe the juice isn't really worth the squeeze anymore, given the geopolitical uh, geopolitical upheaval that's that's uh, that's going on over the past several months. And so you put all that together. I mean, I look at this and it seems like it's a pretty easy decision for management to make. It's worth noting they're retaining their trademarks there in Russia. So I would look at this and say, you know what? They're making this decision now. It's probably not a threat or anything like that. They're just saying, look, we're going to go ahead and do this. Um, now, if if the geopolitical environment years years from now looks considerably different, they feel like the risk has diminished somewhat. Then they, I think, would always have that option to consider opening back up there if they were wanted. But it, it feels like a pretty easy decision for them to make. Um, I, I would definitely would not consider this a thesis changing event by any stretch. Uh, when, when you when you consider the global nature of McDonald's, I mean, system wide sales. I mean, these guys did. System-wide sales in 2021, they did 112 billion dollars in system-wide sales, right? And so when you look at Ukraine and Russia, those markets represent in total about two percent 
of those system-wide sales. So, so nothing really that's going to hit them in the pocketbook, so to speak. Yes, they'll take a, a charge. Yes, they'll present um, adjusted earnings. Uh, and, and ultimately, it does look like their guidance, for the most part, remains the same, and they will continue opening stores around the world, just not in Russia. Does the spotlight now shift to businesses like Burger King, Domino's, Starbucks, and others? It seems like a natural question for shareholders and Wall Street analysts to ask. Well, look, you know, here's here's the worldwide leader. They're leaving Russia. What are, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question, and that's really anyone's guess as to to how um, companies will ultimately deal with this. I mean, you look at Starbucks, for example. I believe they have halted operations, at least in in Russia, for the time being. Um, I don't know that I've seen anything where they said they're actually shutting down. Um, but you know, again, I mean, it's it's difficult in certain instances for companies to to take stances right i mean if it's if it's a debatable issue it becomes it becomes a much riskier proposition um, this really isn't that risky of a proposition because it's not really a debatable issue i think most of the world is on board uh, with with the notion that this really is unacceptable and russia shouldn't be doing what it's doing so so they there isn't that risk and and i think that probably gives these leadership teams at all of these different food and beverage operators it gives them the opportunity to at least examine those lines of business more closely to see really if, like I said earlier, you know, is the juice really worth the squeeze? Because if it's not, you know, then they can go ahead and and, and make that that business decision while also getting a chance to to really stand for the values that they espouse. And I mean, I think this really falls in line when you look at McDonald's. Their core values, their core values are serve, inclusion, integrity, community, family, right? And it feels like this one really falls squarely on the integrity value, which for them is ultimately do the right thing. I feel like they feel like they're doing the right thing, and I think most people would would side with that. Um, and so for businesses. Considering this, I think they're taking a very close look at how McDonald's deals with this. They're taking a very close look at how the investor community and the rest of the world responds. And that will probably help dictate the course of action for some of these others in the next several weeks to months, assuming this continues to drag on. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Actually, Jason Moser is sticking around because he and Matt Frankel are taking a closer look at Twilio. Now, you may not know Twilio, but if you've ever ordered an Uber, you've experienced its technology. Twilio helps send the notification saying, your ride is here. Shares are down 60% year-to-date, and the guys are focusing in on how Twilio makes money, the risks for investors moving forward, and one of Twilio's underappreciated competitive advantages. We love to dig into companies here. We love to learn a little bit more about what they do and why they pique our interest. And this week, we're digging a little bit more into Twilio. This is a company I'm sure many listeners are familiar with and many likely own. Uh, I, I know I own it, Matt. I feel pretty darn good about that, even in this market sell-off we're witnessing. Um, so, so let's take a few minutes to dig into Twilio. Let's learn a little bit more about the business, what it does, and why it might uh, present an opportunity for investors. Uh, just very, very high level, though. To to get started here, what does Twilio do? Yeah, so this is a stock that's been on my watch list for a long time now. I don't own it yet, but I'm especially at the current prices, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a Twilio shareholder before too long. They're a software as a service company. They 
their mission is to kind of bring the way companies communicate with their customers into the 21st century. Um, yeah. Just to give you a few examples, most people listening have been a user of Twilio's software without even knowing it. If you right. if you've booked an Uber and you get the little push notification that your driver is arriving, that's something that Twilio has 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 provided them. If um, you make a, a, rest, a restaurant reservation through Yelp, that's something that Twilio does. If you get an automated message from Airbnb confirming your booking, that's a Twilio product. So they build out kind of these communications tools um, designed to help businesses interact with their customers better because, quite honestly, people expect more from from the companies that they do business with than they ever have before. Nobody wants to pick up a phone and call a helpline these days. <laughs> Nobody wants to have to go to a website to see if their pizza is on the way. Nobody wants yeah. to have you know they they want a quick notification on their smartphone. They want they want something that's automated, fast, tells the story and that they don't have to go out of their way to do and Twilio kind of helps companies fulfill this essential need of their business. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you made, a, I think, a great point there in that a lot of people, most of us, probably all of us <laughs> to an extent, are, are probably using Twilio technology or benefiting from Twilio technology and never even realizing that's the case. And, and to me, that those oftentimes are really some of the most compelling um, investments because, you know, we, we, we see the convenience at our fingertips, yet we don't really understand the infrastructure and the work that's going on behind the scenes. And that really is what Twilio is doing. And they do this through these APIs, right? These application program interfaces that just uh, enable enable them to ultimately build out the communications infrastructure uh, for, for, this, for this digital economy that we're really evolving into. And so, to me, it's always struck me as, as a necessity at this point, right? I mean, businesses need to be able to incorporate this technology into their models. Or they'll fall by the wayside. So then you have the opportunity, you have the option. You can either try to build that that functionality and capability yourself, or you can uh, go to to expert providers. And, and it feels like Twilio is certainly building up that reputation as an as an expert provider. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the customers. In, in its uh, in its universe there, but but let's you know we, we always like to, to look at how these businesses make money. I think it's it's one thing to really uh, it's very important to understand how a business makes its money because that that can really paint a picture as to to what the future may hold. Um, and when we look at Twilio, obviously uh, a lot of customers, a lot of big customers. But how prime how does Twilio make its money? Well, it's a subscription model. Um, you know the the companies that use it pay Twilio for. For, for integrating their product into their platform, um, it's it's all recurring. It's a recurring revenue model, which is you know, like most software as a service companies run, and like most software as a service companies, it's a high margin uh, revenue stream. Uh, yeah. Twilio's gross margin is well over fifty percent, and it should get even better as it scales. Um, and it's 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 a fee model, and and it's fee income that grows with the customers. Um, as to, as customers are, are are growing and are using Twilio more to communicate with their customers, they're actually spending more on on Twilio's products and services over time. The average customer that's been with Twilio for a year is spending thirty percent more than they were a year ago on Twilio. So, yeah. so it's it's a it's a nice not only recurring revenue but it's a very expandable relationship. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think you make you make you make a, an astute observation there, and you got sort of a, a, a dual a dual threat there, right? It, 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 there's a subscription side to the business, but there's also that usage based model, right? And so, as its relationship grows with its consumers, I mean, that usage based model really comes into play, and, and I think actually the majority of its revenue does come from the usage based side, um, which which to me is encouraging, given given sort of the direction we're headed uh, in this digital economy. Economy and communications becoming paramount for so many of these businesses, and so the more they're using Twilio's products and services, well, the more they're benefiting, of course, and, and of course, the, the more Twilio is, is benefiting as well. And, and when we talk about some of these clients, some of these customers that Twilio works with, I mean, there there's a a litany of them, right? I mean, they have over two hundred fifty thousand, I think, over two hundred sixty thousand active customer accounts today now. But some of these some of these clients are massive. I mean, Airbnb, Stripe, Sales. Force, just to name a few. Um, I mean, when companies start, companies of that stature start incorporating technology like Twilio's into their into their models, uh, into their infrastructure. It feels to me like as time goes on, there's a, there's a stickiness that develops there, where it just becomes less and less likely that companies are going to want to switch over to a different provider, particularly if. The services that they're getting from Twilio are delivering, and it feels like at this point those services are delivering. So, so maybe as time goes on, that we start to see some switching costs develop there. Yeah, and I, you made a good point. Um, the the kind of counterpoint to that is it makes Twilio's revenue kind of top heavy, as it yeah. kind of like the problem that the S and P index funds rely on, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple for like you know a lot of their their market cap. Twilio relies on a, 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 its big customers for an outsized portion of its revenue. Uh, DoorDash yeah. is another one that uses Twilio for, for customer notifications. Um, the top 10 customers in Twilio's, out of those 256,000, uh, account for 12% of the revenue. So th- that's a pretty concentrated you know, top 10 out of 256,000. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully, some of those other Two hundred and fifty-five thousand nine hundred ninety will be will become some of these big customers one day. For now, it it is a top-heavy business model that creates a little bit of risk. Yeah, and, and, and certainly top-heavy usage-based. I mean, it's it's great when times are good, but it's also worth remembering. I mean, when when times do get tough, if that usage goes down, that that definitely is going to impact uh, Twilio's financials. I mean, that's that's going to impact business performance. And I mean, I think one of the nice things about that that usage-based sort of approach. Um, it, it, there's a very low cost of entry for for new customers, right? I mean, new customers can try Twilio out without really having to invest much of anything to give it a shot, right? There's a little time and a little work in incorporating it, but ultimately, it's a pretty easy entry for new customers. They don't have to commit a lot up front. And, and then, as they discover, if they discover that the relationship's working, that they're gaining value from that relationship, then they expand that relationship. They add on services and functionalities, and, and that cer- that certainly can grow the relationship there. Um, how do we feel about leadership here? This is this is a a founder led business in Twilio. Any any anything stand out to you in regard to uh, to leadership here? Well, their founder's a pretty impressive guy, uh, Jeff Lawson. Um, if you just look at a little bit of his resume, he was a, a founding uh, executive of StubHub. He was uh, one of the original project managers when Amazon lost eight, launched AWS. 
Um, right. So, you know, really high, high percentage of success in these like high growth startup uh, businesses. Um, I mean, StubHub, I just used StubHub yesterday. Uh, it's a, you know, the biggest ticket platform in the world, other than you know, outside of like the ticket masters. Um, yeah. AWS speaks for itself, and he was the original product manager <laughs> on it. Um, he's a highly invested CEO. He owns about 4% of the company. And his employees like him. Uh, that's one thing that really stands out. People really underestimate. I, I always get a lot of questions about, wh why do I... I always mention Glassdoor reviews when I when I when I do a write. You know the the employee satisfaction reviews. That sure. especially in the highly competitive tech industry, that's such an underappreciated competitive advantage because it, it it being able to attract and retain top talent is everything, and it's not just about pay. Today's tech workers will not put up with a crappy work environment. <laughs> in exchange for a great salary. They just won't. Um, everyone's offering a great salary in tech. Um, he has a 93% approval rating among his employees. And so many reviews specifically call out the great corporate culture and great benefits, things like that. So, th that's a really overlooked competitive advantage that Twilio has going for it. And I mean, great leadership team, great board of directors, uh, former uh, Amazon and Oracle executives are on there. Um, of some ex-politicians are on there. Really interesting group of people to, to kind of make decisions behind the scenes. Yeah, and and ultimately, I mean, this looks like a business with a lot of potential. Um, it, 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 clearly, the stock has has just been taking taking a beating here over the last several several weeks, uh, as as has everything. But yeah, I really wouldn't. Um, to me, I don't know that that that's not a that's not a. That's that's not a signal that this is a a bad or failing business. I mean, every, everything is really uh, everything is really taking taking a beating, of course. But when you look at the market opportunity for a business like Twilio today, management sees this total addressable market reaching eighty seven billion dollars by twenty twenty three, just next year. And um, business that's chalked up here, I think, just a little over three billion dollars in revenue over the last twelve months. And it's also a, a team that sees growing organic revenue at thirty percent or better annually here over the next three years. So, I mean, you've you've got a business with a lot of a lot going for it, a, a tremendous market opportunity. Uh, feels like leadership that is committed to building products and services that customers want. I think you know where I stand on this one as as an owner of the shares already. Matt, it sounds like I kind of feel like I know the answer. It sounds like you feel pretty good about this one too. So, your bottom line takeaway on this: when you feel bullish, you feel bearish on Twilio. You still on the fence? All the things you just said, plus the fact that the stock's down about seventy-five percent from the highs, doesn't hurt. <laughs> so, no, it's definitely it's it's toward the top of my watch list. Um, I will probably become a Twilio shareholder once I have some free capital to do so in the next few weeks. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of the business, and I think it's. I think we're still in the early stages of the digital transformation, um, and, and the Twilio has a lot to, to gain from it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.